Take a seat and welcome your neighbors around you. Compliment them on their outfit. Let them know that they did good this Easter. My 10-year-old daughter is a fashionista. She picked my outfit out today, so all compliments go to her for how her dad looks. She said, Daddy, can I do your hair? I said, yes, ma'am. So she did the hair. She picked the shirt out. She even picked the britches out. Her mom had a debate over the britches. If you don't get the britches right, the whole outfit's off. Man, we're humbled you're here today with us. Uh, my name is Pastor Russ. This is my first Easter back in the South in 13 years. Yeah. And uh, last night as I was texting all my pastor friends and, and kind of like for, for you guys, I don't know what gets you amped up, like what your favorite day of the year is. This is it. If you're a preacher, I mean, this is about as big as it comes because we get to talk about this story that changes everything. I mean, the entire Christian faith hinges on the fact that the tomb is empty. If the tomb isn't empty, then we're just wasting time and dressing up and spending all this money and dying eggs and eating deviled eggs for no reason. But because the tomb is empty, there's, there's reason to get all gussied up and come together to remember the fact that this was a history-shaking, life-changing, eternity-making moment that we get to celebrate and remind each other of because of the empty tomb, you and I know that we are forgiven, that there is a day coming where we're going to lock eyes with our maker, and not because of our own work, but because of the very work of Jesus, we're going to have confidence in that day that we will be received by God, not rejected by God, because the blood was sufficient to make payment, and the resurrection was, was a clear picture and understanding that the check had cleared because the tomb was empty, and we get to do that today. And I'm not going to uh, try and do something creative or cute. Uh, someone asked me last night, they said, you've been preaching Easter for five weeks now. What are you going to do tomorrow? I'm like, I'm going to preach Easter. I'm going <laughs> to preach that the tomb is empty, that sinful people can have new life, that you can be forgiven. I don't care where you've been, what you've done, and how long it's been since you've come into the presence of God around the people of God, but I believe the Savior is sufficient for you to transform and take you out of your tomb and to give you a resurrected and transformed and new life. So if you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 24. I want to talk to you about Easter afternoon today. Easter afternoon. That's kind of where we want to go. The road of doubt on Easter afternoon in Luke chapter 24. Uh, to kind of give you an idea of where we're at in your Bible as you're turning there, the early morning of the first Easter, two women went to the tomb you see that in verses 1 to 12. Then you get the women's witness to the disciples that comes in verse 11. Later in Luke 24, uh, he's going to appear to all of his disciples and tell them, don't be afraid. Which, if you were crucified and three days later you showed up in a room with me, that would be a good idea, but I would still be afraid. I would struggle to adhere to your advice, because you were dead, 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 and now you're standing in front of me wanting to have a meal. So that's going to happen later. And then the end of Luke 24, we get the ascension in verses 50 to 53. Right in the middle, you get Easter afternoon. And I want to preach about Easter afternoon to you, because a lot of you, while we come gussied up on Easter morning, we have an Easter afternoon that we're facing with real problems and real doubts that won't have shifted or changed much. We'll come to church for, you know, that moment to make mom or grandma or friends happy who have invited us uh, perpetually for the last several months. you got to come see the new pastor. He's barefoot. It's awesome. You're going to love it. <laughs> but you're still going to face an Easter afternoon. And that's what's going on on the road to Emmaus. Two of Jesus' disciples, 
dealing with the fact that there's conflicting reports. They've seen the fact that he's died, and I'll tell you more about that in just a second. They've heard the idea that he may be alive. But they're struggling to reconcile what it means for their life currently. You see, the the first Easter wasn't a day that was faith-filled. It was a day that was doubt-filled. Mary and them saw the tomb was empty, but the disciples doubted. These disciples doubted to the point that they were likely returning home to the life that they had before they ever started following Jesus. And they're pondering questions like, what are we going to do now? We thought he was the Son of God. We thought that there was a reason for hope, but now it seems that our hopes were misguided and misplaced. So what do we do now that we didn't see God come through in the way that we thought he would come through? See, that's the Easter afternoon. It's the moment after the choir isn't on stage, and it's not as easy to be inspired to focus on and be hopeful in the resurrection of Jesus, having power in the defeated places of your life that you've been wandering in for a long time now. And it's on the road to Emmaus where the resurrection intersects the life of two disciples, and I believe there's something for us in this story today. Look at your Bible with me. Luke chapter 24, we'll start in verse 13. It says this, that same day... Two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles, from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But, verse 16, God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short. Sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, and we get their name, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. It's a warm Christian greeting. What's wrong with you? You don't know this? Verse 19. What things, Jesus asked, and you can almost see the smirk. I mean, he's Jesus. What doesn't Jesus know? Right? What things? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened, and this is a key detail, three days ago. This all happened three days. Days ago. Here in the midpoint, two disciples on a seven mile walk back into a life that they've not known perhaps for years now, trying to figure out what they're going to do. And we're told some key details in the beginning. Number one, we're told that they were kept from recognizing Jesus. Because for a lot of us, when you know you're in the presence of someone that's great, you change your answers. You get inauthentic. You put what we call church clothes on and you doctrine up the the words that you speak. For some of you, this is your prayer life. You speak completely normal until it's time to pray. And when you pray, you go King James on everybody. (laughs) And we don't know why you're putting TH on every bit of your prayer. We don't know why you keep repeating God as if he doesn't know you're praying to him. God, we are here, God, and we just want to love you, God, because thou hast blessed us. You've never said thou outside of a prayer. (laughs) But the second you start praying to God, you think he must have spoke King James And you don't realize he actually likely spoke Greek and Hebrew. 
So unless you are speaking Greek and Hebrew, you're not speaking the native language that Jesus spoke when he was on earth, and your do- like doctored up language does not impress God. Like he's not, oh wow, you got a really good handle on thou. Like I'm, I'm, I was wondering whether I was going to tune into the prayer, but when I heard thou and God and Father five times in two sentences, I was like, well, thou must listen. <laughs> Some of you, you've walked into an interaction with Jesus, and he didn't let you know he was going to meet with you because you would have doctored it up and church clothed it up if he'd have told you. You see, oftentimes we misunderstand what Jesus wants most from us. He's, he's not looking for the perfect version of you. He's looking for the present version of you. I, I want to say that again because some of y'all didn't hear me. He's not looking for what you aim to be next year to honor God. He's looking for where you're at in the present. And present for some of you ain't good. Present for some of you is in doubts. Present for some of you is not in a place of great hope. Present for some of you is in a place of honest apathy. And you may say you're Christian on the census, but let's be honest, there's no practice of the Christian faith that's present in any part of your life currently. And what Jesus invites us in his grace and mercy to do is not to come with the old version of us that had faith or had hope or the future version of us that we think will someday have faith or hope again, but to bring the present version of us to him because it's in the present that he's at work in our midst. It's in the present that God meets us in his resurrection and transforms us from where we've been and the doubts we've held on to into becoming something brand new. So the invitation is, what things have you heard? What, what have you heard? You see, Mary thought him to be the gardener. Uh, these disciples just think him to be a stranger. But in both instances, Jesus was showing up into the present place that his disciples were, whether it was doubt, concern, or fear. He shows up where they're at. Now, a couple things I want you to know. The first is the road to Emmaus is what I would call a path of providence. It's a path of providence. Uh, Primarily in the Bible, some of you have heard me teach this before, God works in two ways. I'll use it as two hands, okay? So we have the hand of miracles and the hand of providence. Are you tracking with me? When God does in uh, the Bible a, a miraculous work, he steps in with his hand in time, and he does something that is against what's the normal natural law. He parts water so that the people of Israel walk through on dry land. He rains down manna so that they can have food in the middle of the desert. He brings water out of uh, a rock. He provides for them in a supernatural way. Uh, another way is Jesus. When he's on earth, he puts mud on a guy's eyes that are, that are blind, and he, can, he opens a mute man's mouth so he can... And no doctor could help. In fact, Luke even tells us there was a woman that had been uh, afflicted with a lot of pain by doctors that were uh, poking and prodding on her. And he miraculously, just by touching the hem of his garment, healed her. And she was cured of this disease that not only kept her from society, but it kept her from going into the temple. Because under the Old Testament law, she was considered unclean and couldn't come before God until she cleaned herself up. Which is the old way of looking at religion, not what Jesus came to do where he brings unclean people into his presence in their present state and makes them clean because that's the goodness of God. So he doesn't need your makeup or your cover-up. He doesn't need your promise of future obedience or faithfulness. Instead, he invites you in the state that you're in into the presence of him, and he offers to work. And how does he often work? Well, you have the hand of miracles and you have the hand of providence. You see, most of us want a miracle, but God always is working providentially. 
Providence is usually never seen until you look back in the rearview mirror and you realize, I thought God wasn't there, but he was walking with me the whole time. It's that moment in your life where you're like, man, we were in a tough situation and I was crying out. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I didn't know where we were going, what we were going to do. I didn't know what the future was going to look like. I didn't think we would survive it. And now I'm looking up, and we've made it, and I would love to say, I did it, and I'm a she-woman warrior princess, and I'm awesome. But when I look into the rear view, I begin to realize that God was orchestrating things around me that were showing his divine care over me, and I didn't recognize it when I was in it. But now that I look back on it, I can see that providentially God took care of me. Next week, we begin a seven-week study in an Old Testament book called the book of Ruth. God never intervenes miraculously in the book, in any chapter or any verse. In fact, he's not mentioned by name in the book at all. What you see in the book is God providentially taking care of a widow named Naomi and her, uh, uh, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth taking care of them and guiding them back to a place where they would be provided for, putting them in fields where he had left food behind for them to have. You see, providence is God taking care of you often in the blindness of you seeing it. You see, this road, the road to Emmaus, it's a path of providence. And Jesus invites on that road, in the doubt, the present state of his disciples to come before him. Now, notice what they begin to say down in verse 17. As he asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about these things that have happened here the last few days. Jesus says, what things? Now notice the tense that they speak, okay? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. All right, here we go. He was a prophet. Used to be. But, but not today. Who did powerful miracles? And he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priest and other religious leaders handed him over. So where is God's work in their mind in Jesus? In the past. He was a mighty teacher. He was a prophet. Now here's what I want you to see. Their belief on the work of God through Jesus in their life is in the past. So notice where their hope is. Look at the text. It says, verse 21, we had hoped. Here's the belief, and here's the question. If you believe that God is done in whatever it is you face presently, then your hope will be a story of what was yesterday because when you, don't, when you think God is done, your hope follows it into a past tense. And For a lot of you right now, as you sit here on this Easter Sunday, your present state is a place that has hope that once was, not hope that rests and is. You once believed that God had a plan for your life. You once believed that God desired to do great things through. You once believed that God was going to bring this mess that was going on in your family to some glorious, beautiful picture or tapestry that would work together for his glory and our good. But, but you believe God's done. Now, you don't want to say that because you know, theoretically, God could show up at any time and do whatever he wants to do. You just aren't waiting on it. You aren't hoping for it. You're on a seven-mile retreat, not a seven-mile walk towards God. 
You're walking away from the idea of it. And you in your mind may even have a PR scheme that you've cooked up for how you can pass off the fact that God didn't come through the way that you had hoped he would come through. He didn't show up the way that you had hoped he would show up. But for your heart, it's been walking a long time in the opposite direction of Jerusalem and walking far and farther and farther away from God. We had hoped he was the Messiah. But notice the detail at the end of verse 21. It says, this all happened, what? Why that detail? Why do you need to know it's been three days? If you go back just a few months prior to Jesus' crucifixion, there was another man that was a friend of Jesus who had two sisters, Mary and Martha. Anybody remember? Martha, Martha, Martha. Okay. She's like Marcia from the Brady Bunch. It just doesn't go right for her ever. Okay. So you got Mary and Martha. And they're, they're brothers, this guy named Lazarus. Lazarus gets sick, and Jesus finds out that he's sick, but it says Jesus doesn't go immediately and show up. Mary and Martha expected a miracle. What they were getting was providence that was going to lead them one day to a miracle, but nonetheless, it was providence because Jesus was doing something greater than they could see in the moment with the pain and the affliction that they were seeing going on in their life with their brother. And they were probably sitting there thinking, this is senseless, this is meaningless. We know the Messiah, we know the Son of God. He's helped others, he's healed others. But now our brother, who he loves is suffering, and he doesn't deserve to suffer. Where's Jesus when we need him? We were faithful. We go to church. We were in the Bible study. We helped our neighbor. We loved others. Why isn't he, why isn't he showing up for us? It says Jesus waited. How many days did he wait? Three days. Why? Because on the third day, there was a belief after, uh, how many of y'all seen Princess Bride? Okay, if you've not and you're over 13. <laughs> marriage is what wings us together today. Okay, and if you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> love, true love, okay? If you don't know what I'm talking about, just at some point, check it out. In that movie, they bring Wesley to Billy Crystal's character, and they ask, is he dead? And what's Billy Crystal's character's answer? Sort of dead. Mostly dead. But not completely dead. Okay. The, the idea was, yes, he was dead, but it wasn't completely dead because it hadn't been long enough for it to be completely dead yet. So there was a chance that with this like, weird elixir, he could come back to life and go pre- re- rescue Buttercup, and it would be an awesome story. Okay. In Jewish culture, they believe that the spirit hovered over the body for three days. So within a three-day period, they would call it a resuscitation, and someone could come back to life if there was prayer and sacrifice offered, if there was a a miracle that happened. But three days in, they believe the spirit left hovering over the body and went into the heavens, and there was no more hope. They were dead dead. Jesus shows up when it's dead dead to prove that he's the God of the dead. And he calls to Lazarus from the outside of the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. And and they're arguing with him the whole way. He's dead, dead. He stinks. In the KJV, it says he stinketh. (laughs) They're not wanting to do it. They don't want to believe anymore. I'm not believing that anymore. It's day three. Day two, Jesus could have done it. Day three, Jesus ain't going to happen. He's dead, dead. That's the way it works. It's been three days he's been in the tomb. Cleopas is saying, he's dead, dead. He may have called from the outside of the tomb, 
to the one that was in the tomb and brought them out. But you don't go into the tomb and come back out. That didn't happen. He's gone. He's dead and gone. Now, some interesting things. We are introduced to this guy named Cleopas. Cleopas, Dr. James Boyce did a study on this. Cleopas is believed to be the same guy that's spelled Clopas in John 19, 25. Look at this text, because it gives us some insight into who these two disciples might be. Standing near the cross where Jesus' mother and his mother's sister marry the wife of, okay, Clopas. So there's this belief by a lot of theologians that Clopas or Cleopas and likely his wife Mary, who is an Aunt Mary, an Uncle Cleopas, who also have two sons that are disciples of Jesus, James the Lesser, and I can't remember his other name right now off the top of my head. So Aunt Mary and Uncle Cleopas had believed that their nephew was the chosen Messiah. They had been there around Mary as things were going on. She stood there with Mary at the cross, which makes sense because you don't like walk off a crucifixion. Like, like you pull a hamstring and like I'll walk it off, right? Like, like you, you don't... You don't get scourged and marred beyond recognition, and three days later, you're just like, oh, I walked it off. You know, like, they thought I was dead. Surprise. Like, you would be a mess, open wounds. It'd be a terrible sight. I mean, it, it makes sense beyond the fact that God was keeping them from seeing that if Mary was walking this seven-mile walk with her husband, Cleopas, and they were trying to figure out, what do we do now, and where do we go, and we thought this, and we thought that, it, it makes sense that if she was standing at the cross and seeing the state that Jesus was in, she would not be expecting a whole person to be walking beside her that was not bearing wounds all over their body or even able to walk. I mean, the last time we saw Jesus walking, he had a man helping him carry the weight of the cross beam to even get to the hill. So, I mean, the idea that he's now walking after crucifixion is insane. It's an amazing story and it's an amazing detail because think about this. Jesus takes the time in the middle of a seven-mile walk of doubt and retreat away from the hope that God was going to move to walk with Uncle Cleopas and Aunt Mary to give them comfort days after his crucifixion. You see, the road to Emmaus, the second thing I want you to see, the road to Emmaus, number one, is a road of providence, but the road to Emmaus is a road of doubt. And Cleopas lets it all out in the text. All of his confusion, his depression, his disillusionment, his shrinking faith, his anger, he lets all of it out. Sounds like a psalm that King David would have written. In the middle of this, there's a few points I think we can make in verses 22 to 24 about the doubts that he expresses in past tense form. Uh, The first is, there's a big difference between knowing something and believing it. If you read further, down in verse 24, it says, Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. So they know there's an account that's saying, Jesus has risen from the dead. They've heard it from an angelic being. The tomb is empty. And trusted disciples, Peter and John, and John, when he writes the story, wants you to know that he was faster than Peter and beat him to the tomb because, you know, who's got time to just tell you the straight story without giving you the details of who's a better athlete? Just in case you were keeping count, John, faster than Peter, made it to the tomb first. (laughs) Peter, slower than John, older than John, achy joints, trying to walk it off, pull a hammy if he runs too hard with John, got there second. They know that this is there. They just don't believe it. 
Isn't that a great summation of Easter Sunday in the South? You know the gospel's here. You know that the truth is it's paid for in full. You just don't believe it. You know that he's offered payment for sin by his blood on the cross. You know that he's risen from the dead in victory and he offers salvation to whosoever. It's just you don't believe it actually applies to you. You know that he works in all things for the good of those who love him according to his will and purpose. You just don't believe it for you. You know it to be written. You just don't know it to be true because you've not actually believed it was possible in the experience that you were living in. See, there's a big difference between knowing and actually believing. A lot of you know a lot of stuff, so you can sit here and go, oh, amen, yep, just pass that off. Yep, I heard that before from another pastor that was older and smarter and had shoes on. (laughs) But there's a big difference between knowing and believing. Do you know or do you believe? Do you know or do you believe? Number two, Jesus doesn't reject them because they were lacking faith or doubting. And this is good news for all of us. He knows that they don't believe, yet in patience, he takes the time to talk to them. In fact, Kent Hughes, the theologian, said it this way. uh, Jesus coaxed them to reveal their true thoughts, which were by and larger their doubts. And when they did so, he answered, the Lord honors. I want you to hear this. Spiritual honesty. For some of you, the best thing you could do with the mess of your life that you're trying to make sense before God is go, I don't know what to do with this. But you walked out of a tomb, so apparently you can do some miraculous stuff. Because this one's, I mean, you want to look at a case for a miracle. This is a a case. So I'm going to give it to you instead of sit in my doubts of trying to fix and glue and make this into being something that it cannot be apart from divine intervention. You see, the road to Emmaus, finally, number three, the road to Emmaus is a road of hearing before seeing. Jesus doesn't reveal himself to them visibly first. Instead, he reveals himself to them in two ways. Number one, he admonishes them. And number two, he teaches an exposition of the word to them. He gives them admonishment and he gives them exposition. He first gives them, a, excuse me, not admonishment, admonition. Sometimes, you know, you just, between Thursday when you write the sermon and Sunday you forget English. Admonition. He gives them a warning, a correction, a rebuke. Look at what he says in verse 25. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. That's not real nice to say to your aunt and uncle, okay? You foolish people, why is it so hard for you to believe in the scriptures? What is he saying? In the ESV it says he calls them slow of heart. Though there were witnesses already testifying to believe Christ had risen, they were slow to believe it because it was hard for them to comprehend that God had done it. Even though they had seen Jesus do all the other miracles he had done. Though the scriptures and prophets had foreshadowed and predicted this, they had overlooked it with eyes that were set on their own agenda. Eyes that could only see God if he moved in one space of their life, so they were ignorant to the fact that he was moving all over their life. They wanted a conquering king who would vanquish Rome, not a Messiah who was the lamb who would come and lay down his life so that not just Jewish people but Roman citizens and Gentiles alike could all come into the house of God by the blood of the Son. You see, they had read and believed the prophecy selectively as they embraced the Messiah ruler passages, ignoring the passages that prophesied of the Messiah who would come and suffer. Let me be very clear. There's a great danger in selective belief. Believing what's appeasable to you, but editing what is not appeasable to you. This is not the way God delivers his word 
to us. We are not God's editors. We are God's messengers. We receive the word of God as the revealed character and will and work of God. And then it's our job by the spirit of God to allow him to apply that word to our life so that we then become an example to the world of the glory and the work of God and imperfect people like us. So my question to you this morning is where are you slow of heart? Where are you slow to believe Christ's character and word? Where are you slow to believe that the presence of God is present in whatever situation it is that you are doubting that he's present in? Where are you slow to believe that God is providentially not looking out for you and caring for you in this season of your life? Where are you slow to believe that Christ isn't going to return? Where are you slow to believe in the Bible's teaching about heaven, eternity, and time? Where are you slow to believe the Bible's teaching about identity and value and worth and who it says you are? Where have you become slow of heart. You see, he first gives them a rebuke that brings conviction, but then he gives them an exposition or a teaching. And look at what it says in verse 26 about it. Wasn't it clearly predicted, that's prophecy, that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? <laughs> then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scripture the things concerning himself. This is every pastor's dream. You mean to tell me that I've got seven miles to walk from Exodus to Malachi and connect it through. I'm going to preach the whole Old Testament in one sermon. Let's roll. Let's head off to Woodruff. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine Jesus gives them a master class on how the entire Old Testament has been pointing to and foreshadowing this moment. He probably started in Genesis 3 where he said there would be a seed that would come that would crush the head of the serpent, which was a statement that God made after the fall in the Garden of Eden that Jesus would come and do exactly what he would do on the cross for us, defeating Satan and defeating sin and defeating death. He probably then went to Genesis chapter 22 where Abraham was on the hill with Isaac and he was getting ready to sacrifice his son, but God had placed a sheep that was there, a ram that was there that could be sacrificed in his place. Some theologians believe the hill where that sacrifice took place is the hill called Golgotha where Jesus actually died and God actually gave his son for us. It's an amazing story. He probably then went to Exodus 12 to talk about the Passover lamb and how the blood that was on the doorpost allowed, because of the blood, the people that were inside to be forgiven, even though they were condemned and dead in their sin too. He probably went through the Levitical sacrifices, Numbers 21, and pointing to the fact that as Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He probably went to Psalm 2 and Psalm 16 Psalm 22, which all speak about the crucifixion of the Messiah hundreds of years before crucifixion even was being practiced on earth. You see, God calls a shot, and then he follows through on what he says he's going to do. Isaiah 7, it says, a virgin. That's a pretty awesome statement about a baby coming into the world, but a, a virgin will conceive, and a son, and his, a son and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born, a son is given, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, and the increase of his government shall increase. He probably went to Isaiah 53, and he started talking about the fact that he would be despised and rejected and pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. All along in the Old Testament, God saying, I'm sending a lion who will lay down as the lamb, but when he comes back, he returns as the roaring lion because he's king of kings and lord of lords and alpha and omega. See, a large part of why I believe is the prophecy that's included in the Bible over 300, time, God, 300 times in the Old Testament. God calls his shot in advance. Not only does he call his shot, he does it with layered detail, making the probability of it being true statistically extremely difficult. One-fourth of the entire Bible you hold is prophetic in nature. God's showing you and speaking to future events that will happen or have happened and then fulfilling it with his word and power in a way that only he could. There was a guy that wrote a book named Peter Stoner 
and it's called Science Speaks. In it, he looked at 48 predictions in the Bible, and he looked at, through the chapters, the odds of one man fulfilling eight of the 48 prophecies that he was looking at. He found out that the odds of one man fulfilling eight is one in ten to the 17th power. Let me give you some perspective. If you were to fill the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep, mark one with a dot, blindfold a person and say, pick one, they would have the same probability of one man fulfilling eight of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus actually fulfilled. He then went on to look at the odds of one man fulfilling 16 of the 48 prophecies that he was examining in the Old Testament about the Messiah. He found that one man fulfilling 16 would be 1 in 10 to the 45th power. Let me give you some perspective. In order to understand the likelihood of one man fulfilling 16 of the Old Testament prophecies, you would have to take a metal ball that would measure in size as 93 million miles. You got that in your mind? Then multiply it by 30, which is roughly the distance between the earth and the sun 30 times. Got the picture? Just want to make sure you're tracking with me. Then, blindfold a person, mark one coin, fill the rest of it up with other coins, and the chance of that person blindfolded drawing one coin out of all of those coins that's making the trip back and forth to the sun 30 times, it's the same chance of one man filling 16 prophecies. God's making it very obvious. If the resurrection doesn't give you proof and reason to believe that he is enough and he is who he says he is, then perhaps all of the Old Testament prophecies and the likelihood of anyone fulfilling them, much less Jesus who fulfilled all of them, would give you reason to say, maybe. (sighs) Just going out on a limb here, Harry. (laughs) Maybe he's actually the son of God. Of God. Now I could go on because he goes on and looks at other things. In fact, Stoner then applied the, uh, wanted to up the ante to make sure you understood the significant amount of prophecy that pointed to Jesus. And he found that the odds of any man fulfilling even 48 of the 300 Old Testament prophecies jumped to 10 to the 157th power. And I don't have a way to scale that one for you. So if you can't picture 10 to the 157th power, where's that luck? Here's my point there's a document I found, and I just want to show you a few. Messiah will be called Emmanuel, or Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. How many of you had control over where you were born? Exactly. Some of you, your mother had no control. Like, she was planned, she was prepared, she got into the expedition, you were like, I'm coming! And it was it. You were going to be born in Greenville, you ended up being born in Belton, you've never outlived it. I mean, it's just... Micah 5, 2, where's it fulfilled? Matthew 2, Luke 2. I mean, this stuff... This is not like reserved information for pastors. You can Google it. I Googled Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in Christ. Messiah would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. Guess what it says in Matthew and Luke? That. Some of you are like, well, I just doubt that. That's just very hard for me to doubt. Well, I could go on and give you some apologetics for it, but let's just say Joseph stayed. And some of you are like, well, he was just a good man. Well, I'll just be honest with you. If I wasn't married to you, and I know I'm supposed to be a Christian man. I wasn't married to you, and we was engaged, and I found out that you were sleeping around on me, and you was pregnant with somebody else's baby, and I was going to have to pay all of it because children are expensive. I'd be like, girl, peace. <laughs> I don't have time for the more deep, detailed explanations. I'll give you that at Christmas. Messiah would come from the line of Abraham. Genesis 12, 3. Genesis 22, 18. Fulfilled here. Messiah would be a descendant of Isaac, Genesis 17 and Genesis 21. Luke 3, 34, traces his lineage, and guess who's in it? Isaac. Okay, um, 
Messiah be a descendant of Jacob. You got to be related to Jacob too. Guess what? Numbers 24, 17, call it. Matthew 1, 2, list. Guess who in the genealogy? Jacob. Okay, Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Messiah would be an heir to King David's throne. Scroll down a little bit. Give us some more. Messiah would be a prophet. Messiah would be rejected by his own people. There it is. Messiah, a messenger would prepare the way for the Messiah. Boop, boop. Okay, uh, here's my point. The, the reason I preach this with such passion, the reason I'm a Christian it's because no one that has ever built a religion can build this. This is the, the revealing of God. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's God's work on man's behalf in spite of man's uh, rebellion and rivalry and f- closed fist towards him. You see, this is the beauty of the story. Now, I've run out of time running my mouth. But the story goes on that as they finally get to the place that they were going, he was going to go further, but... They invited him in for a meal. They prepared a meal, and Jesus then, sitting at their table, breaks bread. And we're told that in that moment, the scales are dropped off their eyes, and they can see. Some believe it's, they saw the marks, which Jesus still carries. But, but whatever happened, immediately they realized the entire time on the road of doubt, in the midst of their retreat when they were running away from God, he had been leaving the 99 to come and find the two. And I'm just on a limb here saying that today, the good shepherd who was risen set and orchestrated up a barefoot redneck that was living in California and was like, you're going to come here, you're going to be a part of this community, and on this day, this person that's in a seven-mile retreat, they're going to show up, and they're going to have all their doubts and all of their frustrations and and all the reasons why they don't really want to be there. And they're really hoping that he wraps it up because they're just thinking about the banana pudding they left in the car. And... <laughs> and, in, and in the middle of this strange moment, the Holy Spirit showed up in the road to Emmaus. And they said, weren't our hearts burning? Hearts were burning at his presence. And they did something crazy. After taking a seven-mile walk, being tired and having gone through what they go through, they immediately got up and go seven miles back to give witness. And Jesus shows up in their story. Here's the invitation I want to give you on this Easter. For some of you, you have given reasons to your family, to yourself, to God for why he doesn't want you, shouldn't call you, should have nothing to do with you. And I believe that the resurrection is proof that Jesus calls knuckleheads, chuckleheads, whatever you want to call them, like me and you, and he invites us into fellowship with him. And I I would hate for you to pass over this Easter and not be given an opportunity to do the most simple yet transformative thing that you will ever do. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, he is faithful and just to forgive him. I have two neighbors in California when we were in lockdown and we spent a lot of time with them. And she grew up in Guatemala. He grew up uh, stateside in Bakersfield. And they had grown up in a very liturgical background. They knew a lot of liturgy. They knew a lot of scripture, but they didn't know the gospel. And he was like, could you just explain it to me in normal terms? And I walked straight through the book of Romans, and I got to Romans 10, 9. I never will forget the moment his wife and he heard it. And I said, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ Jesus was faithful, uh, that, that Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, and he's faithful and just to forgive you. So by faith, 
through grace, he applies his blood to your life, which makes payment for your sins so that you could be forgiven, restored, given fellowship with the Spirit and one mediator, not me being your mediator between you and God, but the Messiah, Jesus, being the mediator between you and the Father. And you get access to him all because you put your faith that his blood was enough for all that mess that you have done, will do, and may continue doing as you work it out in a long-observed path of walking with Jesus. And I never forget his face. He literally went, that's it? It's like, that's it. And his wife comes running in from the kitchen in her broken accent. She's like, that is it? I was like, that is it? <laughs> and I was scared because I was like, you know, sh- should I be telling you more? Like, like is it, but it's, it's that simple. And, he, and he's like, I want to do that now. I was like, are you sure? Like, do you have questions? He's like, no, I want to do that now. Like, how do I do that now? And I got to lead my neighbors to Jesus. As soon as he was done praying, she said, me too. <laughs> Here's the deal. You know a lot maybe about God. You know a lot about this day that we celebrate. But my question is, do you believe and have you experienced the resurrection power of Christ in your life? You may be on a path of providence where you can't see the hand and work of God, but nonetheless, the presence of God is there, and he is faithful and able to keep you and hold you and bring you back into fellowship with him, even though you wonder. But if you've never given your life to Jesus, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to give an invitation for you on this Easter to do so. If that's you, you know today you need Jesus. You've got religion, you've been told a lot of stuff about God, but you don't have a relationship with God. His desire is a personal relationship with you. That's why the Son came. And if you need to give your life to Jesus, we want to confess with our mouth and believe in our heart the truth of the gospel. And I want to lead you to do that. Would you pray this prayer from your heart? Jesus... I believe that you died on the cross to pay for my sin. And I believe that you were buried in the grave. And three days later, you rose. So because of that, I ask that you would apply your cross and your blood to my sin, my life. Forgive me for what I've done. Deliver me from the person that I've been. Be my Lord and my leader. I put my life in your hands every head bowed and every eye closed. If you prayed that prayer, we want to celebrate that. We don't want to make a spectacle or anything like that. But if that's something you did, would you just simply put your hand in the air so that I can see alone that, hey, today I made that decision. Praise God. Amen. 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 Well, hey, it's the wonder-working power of his love. We have a prayer team here. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. Happy Easter. We're so humble that you came to celebrate Jesus or learn more about Jesus today. If we can talk with you, we'd love to do so. Let's stand to our feet and let's sing this chorus.